0: You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, hello to the ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 265 of this thing we call the Fair Game podcast. I'm so glad you could tune in today. Today's guest has over two decades of experience in the fair industry, having spent 24 years at the Eastern States Exposition in Massachusetts before being named president of the Outdoor Amusement Business Association, and that was in January of 2019. He's had his hands full this past year navigating the COVID pandemic and advocating on behalf of OABA's membership. He joins us today from West Springfield, Massachusetts. Folks, this is Greg Chico. Greg, welcome to the show. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me today. I'm so glad you could be with us. I want to jump right into it. What's the last year been like on the OABA side of things?
1: Well, different, like everybody else, I'm sure, Robert, uh, you know, we had goals and expectations coming out of our February meeting of 2020 in Tampa, and had a really great meeting over 300 people at our annual meeting. Uh, we had two floors of Top Golf down in Tampa for our annual fundraiser, and then we get home, and sh- you know, surely, but but for for all practical purposes, within sight of a month, the industry got shut down, kind of starting with Houston shutting down halfway through their run. So, really, all of the uh, goals that we had put forth back in, in Tampa of went by the wayside and we really went into doing whatever our members needed to do to to stay alive and some point point in their lives get open. So your organization boasts, I think I was reading about
0: 2,500 members, and that includes several hundred carnivals, uh, as well as a dozen or so circuses. You kind of got a wide variety. What other types of business members do you represent?
1: So we have a a, a good constituency of food, food concessionaires as well. And then we have a broad base of employee members. So not only is the carnival a member, but several of their employees uh, that work for those carnivals are, are involved in the organization as well. And then we have uh, some retired executives. It's it's pretty much the, the gamut, but it is focused primarily on, you know, on carnivals, circuses, and food concessions.
0: Now, do you only represent, uh, are, like are they mainly American businesses or do you have international membership as well?
1: We have some members in Canada uh, but primarily, our focus is is North America. It, it's North America, but primarily the United States.
0: Got it. And over the last year, how have you all been advocating for your membership during this pandemic?
1: Well, we we've kind of gone with the with the flow, Robert. Um, really, the first thing out of the gate was you know seeing if we could stay open in certain communities, and that quickly went by the wayside. And then down the you know the next step was really what kind of funding relief we have, and they came out with the PPP program. So it was new and foreign to everyone. So we gave a lot of guidance. We, we did several, several uh, membership Zoom calls throughout the course of the year. Um, once PPP was out of the way, uh, we had some, you know, some events were trying to open in the summer and mainly as some smaller events, but, you know, we, we did get the Delaware State Fair to open um, combination of, uh, of Frank Zicek weight shows and uh, the powers, Great American Midway, uh, that, did, that did happen. And did happen safely, and did so without any real cases afterward. So we kind of used that as a model for others that were trying to reopen. And as you can imagine, as we progressed through the summer, most events didn't happen. Um, we, as we got toward the fall, certain geographic pop, uh, populations were were able to pull things off. You know, you had a you had a fair in, in Mobile, Alabama, uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, according to the IAFE, 24 fears wound up actually happening last year. So uh, we just kind of offered guidance everywhere we could. And the reality now is uh, basically focused on on reopening. And as you can imagine, each state has their own set of regulations. Yep. Uh, you know, I think I think it's 2800 independent health committees or <laughs> health commissions across the country, so, Every state's a different challenge and, and it's, it's, we've been busy. Let me tell you, especially right now.
0: So take us back to March of 2020. Uh, RCS is rocking and rolling down there at Houston eight days into it. I guess it was either the mayor or city council. I forget how that all rolled out, but somehow they pulled the plug on it. Um, I know we're getting ready to chat with Dominic here on the show. The frustrations are, have got to be huge on your side of things, I mean, you're the president of OABA, you represent these guys and boom, Houston's gone. What are you thinking at that point?
1: Well, I think that was pretty much the indicator that things were really going to get worse before they got better at that point in time. You know, remember, remember back, Robert, no one knew at this point, what was right. going to happen. You know, and it wasn't just our industry it was really every industry across America were being shuttered or, or influenced somehow by COVID. But I think that was a pretty strong indicator to us that, Uh, It was going to be a very abnormal world and a very abnormal year. And even more frustrating than RCS was uh, North American Midway Entertainment was down in Dade County, Florida, and they got their plug, their plug pulled on them the morning they were supposed to open.
0: Yeah, I think, I think someone told me it was like 15, not even 30 minutes before, like they were ready. Lights were on, corn dogs were getting cooked. They were ready to go and they got shut down.
1: You know, that there's, you know, there's a huge expense, obviously, in setting up a carnival, Yep. And uh, to get the plug pulled like that is is financially devastating. It's it's far worse than staying at home and doing nothing.
0: Yeah, and that would, that's what we've heard a lot. Even on our entertainment side, several of the cancellations that I got towards the end of last year, October, November time, um, one of the fairs was out of Florida. And basically, he told me, you know, the state will let us open, but they're modeling 50 to 60% attendance. And how much money are they going to lose trying to operate on 50%? It just wasn't worth it. So they folded and walked away from the table on it, which I think if you're going to survive through this pandemic, you've got to make decisions like that. They're not easy decisions.
1: Right. The, the interesting part about that now is I think a lot of venues would be happy to see 50 or 60% and maybe
0: yeah. in a moment's notice. But yeah, maybe, 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 I, I you know, it depends on on the venue and, and what you're looking at. I know some restaurants uh, here in Albuquerque that would, that would kill for 50 or 60% right now. Uh, cause the, t- I mean, the takeouts kind of keeping them going a little bit, but I I just have, I feel bad for so many in our industry and I've got a gut feeling. Not everybody's going to make it through. What's your, you know, you got your finger on the pulse of this industry. How, what are you looking at as far as your membership being able to survive this?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing about the outdoor amusement industry it is a very resilient group. And if there's a group that can survive it, it's, it's probably them. And um, while we did see a few, a few folks go, I'll call it go out of business, but they were, they were businesses that were ready for retirement anyway. Um, and I think it might've just pulled the trigger a year or so earlier for them, you know, um, right. businesses that didn't have any family was willing to take over and it was inevitable that they were gonna close anyway. Um, I mean, I, I think you'll see some of the help of some of the companies that didn't work all year, find some other jobs which is unfortunate because uh, our you know, employees in our industry are a very specialized breed. They, they travel, they, they know the, the long hours that happen to set up and tear down and all kinds of weather. So we might see some, some hardship on, on that side, but um, our members kept busy. I mean, they did roadside food, um, Trump memorabilia or, or merchandise was really a huge uh, influence in our industry and they did quite well. And yeah. they just continue to retool every day. The, the hardest part about it, though, is is what we kind of alluded to a, a little earlier, is the go, no-go. So if you if you pick the no-go, then you can, you know, get your, I don't want to say cancel your insurance, but minimize your insurance costs, stay home, not have so much overhead, not have so much help, um, do a little something on the side to have, have an income. Um, and I think this year that's going to be even a bigger problem because, you know, you, you have to have the routing correct. You can't do a you can't do an event at point A and then normally go to B and C and they get canceled and go to D. You just can't you can't operate that way at a profit. Never mind capacity limits. Just right. in general without the routing the routing. So um, right now you know people are trying to put enough of a route together, whether it's their normal route or a route that's different, so that they have somewhere to go every week and then they can then they can pull the trigger and activate their insurance and everything else that they have to activate.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you've got to go, even if you look at what Jay Straits does with straight shows, we had him on the show earlier in the season and, you know, running that all that equipment up that train up the East coast, that's not a cheap proposition for him. And if he's going to lose, you know, two or three dates along the way, it gets awfully expensive to get from Florida all the way up to New York.
1: Yeah. Right. So he has to, he has to play Hamburg. And after that he goes up to Essex junction Vermont. And uh, if, if Hamburg's not happening, there's no way you can, take that train all the way up to Essex Junction. I mean, yeah. it works because there's a route and, that, and that's all there is to it. Yeah. I have to say that for the most part, all of our, you know, industry partners and insurance companies and, and the like and suppliers um, have been outstanding. I mean, uh, they've really, they've really risen to the occasion. They understand what relationships are and, and, you know, everyone's hurting. And, you know, if you can't pay your bill today for the, the mortgage you have on that ride, well, we're going to figure it out. We're not going to, we're gonna we're gonna make it work for everyone, and I I can't really I really can't cite anyone that hasn't been playing in the, in those world in that world.
0: You know, well there's there were a handful of events that did get off the ground. I, I can't recall exactly how many. I I remember having Marla on the show, and um, I I don't remember if there is in the twenty. I know it was under fifty. It, it was not a whole lot there, when you.
1: Twenty four fairs that were IAFE members that played last year.
0: Yeah that's not a lot when you consider the sheer number of events that we have in this industry. Um, and even those events weren't necessarily open at hundred percent capacity. I was at one of them over in Abilene, Texas, and it went, went really well, obviously would have gone better with, you know, another 30% increase in attendance. Uh, can you give us an idea if you know a ballpark of how much revenue your membership has lost in 2020?
1: It's a it's a hard thing to gauge, but I can tell you it's in the billions. There, there's no there's no question about it. I mean, we don't we don't have um, you know direct revenue amounts from each event, so because you know they're 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 privately held companies for the most sure. part. Um, but we we did an extrapolation based on the overall uh, economic. I can say from an economic value standpoint of all the fares in the IFE network. See, we can't we don't really have any qualifications for people that are not members. Right. Uh, and if you take a percentage of that, it's it's still it's still in the billions, Robert.
0: It's just mind-boggling. I, I'm I am just a self-employed entertainer. You know, I go out and I make what I make and I, I can support my family and I know how much I lost. I can't imagine losing that much industry-wide. I mean, is it even possible to recover losses at that magnitude?
1: Yeah, and, and I'll answer that question in a second, but I want to extrapolate the losses that happen down the line. So it, in most cases, carnivals play for events. And the, if you call the old term, they call it a sponsor or, or a committee. So let's start at the smallest one, the local volunteer fire department that has its annual uh, event that it holds at the park in the community. And the carnival is the biggest revenue source of that event almost all the time. So, all of the nonprofit funds that that group raises every year to buy an ambulance or a defibrillator or whatever it is they do with their money is gone. And, and then you magnify that to somebody like uh, Houston or uh, Minnesota or the big E in West Springfield that again, are, are, are all nonprofits, charity-based organizations Well, Minnesota is a quasi state, but regardless of the fact is that they generally support agriculture on the larger level. So yep. all 4H, the FFA, Um, You know, that's what that's what these fairs raise money for. And all those monies are gone. So it's not just the for profit element or even in the case of the event, the non non for profit element. It's all the ancillary charity support that goes down the road. So if you take the billions of loss to the industry, multiply that by all the billions lost to charitable giving in the country. So to, to go back to your question, can can we can we come back from that? Um, again, I'll go to the resiliency of the industry. And and I and I think we can. And and I think you're gonna find there's a lot of pent-up demand out there. I mean, I just went out to a restaurant for the first time in a long time with my wife the other day, and it, we came back and says, Wow, I mean, we haven't done that in a year. You know, it feels good to go out and socialize with the, with the waitress. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, and we saw evidence of that, and I, and I cited it earlier, but specifically in Jackson, Mississippi, and Mobile, Alabama, where their carnival numbers were, barring a little bit of bad weather on one weekend, were pretty much on par with where they had been. Yeah. So I think the answer to your question is yes. And, and, I, and I also think from the psyche of our carnivals and, our, and their employees, they, they just need to get back to work. That's all there is to it.
0: Yep. I'm glad you touched on that with, uh, about mobile. We had, um, Josh Woods on the show earlier in the season and he seemed really pleased. I am really impressed with that, that, that board, they're all 40 and under they're all young on that fair and, uh, you know, willing to do what needs to be done to get a fair in that, that is safe. I think we've demonstrated from the fairs that have opened continually that we can open these fairs safely. Um, you know, you talk about the psyche of getting people going again. I can't tell you how much it meant to me just seeing, um, you know, the Florida state fairgrounds, posting some photos from the RV super show, uh, a, a month or so ago, just seeing some of my friends that were entertainers being down there and, and performing and doing what they do. It was nice to see some movement. Um, it, it it's been a real challenge the last year. What do you think it's been the most, the biggest challenge for you in navigating this pandemic?
1: Well, not only for me, but for all of our members is the, the, the part of being unknown. I mean, I, I would wake up every week on a Monday and say, okay, maybe this week the needle will move a little bit and then it's the next week and it's the same thing. And then weeks turn into months and quite frankly, months turn into a year. And, and it's just now I think we, you know, with the vaccine being out, um, with some restrictions being in place, it's, it seems that even in the isolated parts of the country where masks weren't acceptable, a lot of people Put on their masks to stop the spread, and we're seeing that you know we're seeing the incidence of COVID plummeting, which is good. The vaccines getting out to more and more people, which is good. And uh, you know, I mean, there's a there's a doctor out of John Hopkins that says we'll actually have herd immunity by the end of April. Um, yeah. Whether you buy into that or not, I I don't know. But clearly, by the time we get to summer, life should be you know back to the whatever the new normal is. I mean, I'm sure we'll we'll be living a little bit different lives, but yeah. Um, I think we're going to have a, a great summer and fall.
0: Yeah, I, I think I've been saying on the show for a little while, I think somewhere around June or July, that needle starts to pull back in our favor. And we it, it, events may not be 100 percent open, um, but, you know, North Carolina announced their I guess their governor just issued an executive order of some kind. And he's like, we're having a fair exactly. <laughs> They're They're moving. Um, Virginia's just, I guess, yesterday, the day before. Um, Governor started allowing things to open outdoor events to like 30%, and I think amusement parks to 50%. You know, that as we get that vaccine gets distributed more and more, and these case counts go down, those numbers only go up. The question for me, though, um, you know, we've got movement in a few states right now. Florida's pushing forward, Texas isn't far behind. And dis- despite protocols um, we've put in place from hand washing to physical distancing and, and masking, there's still likely a sizable portion of our public who may be a little skittish and not not ready to come back to outdoor events just yet. What do you think is an industry that we can do as far as messaging to maybe assuage the concerns of those people?
1: Well, that, that's a really good question, and and, and we're actually in the process of, of looking at what we can do, at least as far as social media is concerned. That, and and I won't speak for the for the fairs or the events themselves, because, but I can tell you that carnivals can operate safely. I mean, they're hundred percent outdoors. Um, we, we have dozens of uh, experiences that show that. And I think you're exactly right. We need to put together a social media campaign that when we come into a community that says, okay, carnivals in town, uh, we're ready to operate. We're ready to, to engage your family. And this is what we're doing to make sure you can do it safely. And, and you know, I think that the, the aged population is a population that's been really impacted by COVID. And other than maybe grandpa and grandpa going to the to the fair or the carnival with their family, they're not actively engaged in our industry. So right. you know, if you take the younger folks, um, especially those, you know, those adolescents and young teenagers that don't really seem to be impacted by COVID all that much, um, I I don't think they'll be skittish at all.
0: Yeah, I can tell you when I was out in West Texas, <laughs> I, it was funny when things started canceling, my wife and I looked at the tour schedule and it was like, do you think we're going to get any fairs? And I said, if there's anyone, it's going to be the fair in Abilene because, you know, those the, the Texans, they got the West Texas spirit of we're going to do whatever the hell we want. And, and by God, nothing's going to stop us. And they were able to do it. You know, they used um, they had signage. Um, there were additional hand washing stations, hand sanitizer pumps everywhere on that fairgrounds uh, masking, obviously we were in a building where there was eating. So we didn't see a lot of the masking because people were sitting down and eating. But when you walked outside the building, I would bet 70% of the people were masked. Uh, what, what other strategies and mitigation strategies are you seeing within the industry?
1: Uh, we've been very sophisticated about it. I mean, particularly those that had, had operated, um, you know, they, they were, you know, fogging rides with, um, antibacterial product or an antivirus product that would, you know, would literally last 12 days, they would, or 12 days, 12 hours rather. Um, you know, they would monitor with swab tests to see what bacteria counts were. Yeah. So, you know, ab- above and beyond the obvious of the hand sanitizer, the mask, the distancing, there was a lot that went on behind the scenes um, to make sure that the, the, the product was, was safe. Obviously, you see a lot of uh, plexiglass going up to protect the employees as well as, as the patrons. Um, but I, it, it's funny, I think, you know, temperature taking the whole, the whole gambit, Robert, but I think at this point we've, we've kind of figured out, and I don't mean as an industry, I mean, as a population, you wear the mask, you keep the distance. If you're sick, you don't go out. And, yeah. and I think that's why you're seeing the, the, the spread continue to, to go down every, every day. Yeah.
0: Well, and it, I think everybody knew over the winter, uh, you know, from November, December and early January, we were going to see a spike because, People are gonna get it was families getting together. These weren't events, you know, it wasn't a affair that was causing these spikes. It was it was just families that were getting together that were refusing to be separated for the holidays. And that's understandable. Every every family's gotta make their individual choice. I begrudge no one the choice they made, but we saw a spike in cases because of it. And now I think now that all that's passed, holidays are, are done. We're seeing those case counts drop and and we can open safely. In fact, I I would just let me ask you this, given the, all the the cleanliness that's going on on fairgrounds, you know, wiping down additional rides or, you know, using this, the, um, what are they, hydrostatic sprayers or whatever they're called. Do you think our midways and our, our fairs are actually cleaner now than they were pre-pandemic?
1: Absolutely. And, and you don't need to look at anything other than the flu numbers in this country, the regular flu yeah. uh, that are almost non-existent in Massachusetts. Um, the governor had a theory way back when, a few months ago or three months ago, that they wanted to mandate flu shots for every child going to school, just as they would any other shot. And the theory there was that we would take the flu cases out of, out of the population that would need medical attention to focus on COVID. Well, they eventually canceled that because the incidence of flu was so, it was it was neg- in negligible, it was yeah. it almost didn't exist. So I, I think not only in our industry, but in every other industry, just going to the grocery store. Um, the incidence of, of germs and people are obviously more cognizant of touching things and what they're doing. Um, yeah. That, yeah, we're, we're probably a healthier America for it.
0: Yeah, I think so. I was um, I I was at the gym the other day. You know, we finally were able to get back to the gym. Um, it's, you know, I, I didn't, I like to say I didn't catch COVID-19, but I did gain the COVID-19 in the last year from all the stress eating and not it. being out. and, and
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, but I'm watching literally the gym and gyms are, gyms are dirty. You know, gyms are, people are sweating and coughing and huffing and the gyms are dirty places, yep but I'm watching and people, when I get on a treadmill, I wipe it down. When I'm done with that treadmill, I wipe it down. And then the person who comes on behind me wipes it down again. We're getting more wiped down in sanitation in the gym than I've ever seen. And I got to imagine it looks the same, whether it's at the grocery store, at the county fair, all this, you know, I, I will say this for the flu numbers dropping so rapidly. I read an article. Um, I forget which university it was from. It might've been out of Oxford, but they talked about um, during H1N1, when it was going a number of years ago, that the incidence of the common cold plummeted. And they're, they're actually, I guess they were saying there's some scientific um, indication that's being studied that viruses don't like to commingle. You, you got me on that one, because I would think a cold virus would be like, hey, here's a host, I'm good. But I think what they see is that when a virus like H1N1 or COVID gets going, when that person also hits the common cold virus, or in this case, maybe the flu virus, that there's an alteration in the cell and the flu virus is not effective. It can't get into the cell because the COVID's already already camping there. And so it crashes the cases, which I found kind of fascinating. I think it's much, more, much simpler than that because we, like you said, we are so cognizant of everything around us. We're washing hands more. We're not touching our face as much. We are wearing masks. We are physically distancing. We're wiping down the, the shopping cart before we use it. I think that that alone is killing a lot of these cases, which is good. I mean, we don't need flu going at the same time as we've got we got COVID.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Before long, the next expert will come along and says that we're we're not supporting our immune system with enough germs. So
0: you know. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's not just me, right? Like the last year, it does seem like every time Fauci's gone on TV, he says one thing and then two weeks later he says another. That isn't just me, right? No, it's not. <laughs> that guy. Oh, man. Well, let's shift gears for a little bit. Uh, enough COVID talk. You're clearly an industry veteran. You've spent over two decades at uh, the Eastern States Expo there in Massachusetts. Much of that time was as director of sales. How'd you get involved in the fair industry?
1: Well, actually, my, my history of the fair industry goes back to high school. Um, I was actually the chairman of the junior fair board at Eastern States uh, for, two, for two years. And I was a, a junior and a, uh, and a senior. And part of that experience was actually working summers at the the fair doing a lot of promotions and uh, a very very quick story on my life so I'm the youngest of four boys my father owned a a rather uh, large retail garden center and his job was to uh, educate his kids and never have them come back into the family business and we produced a stock trader an architect and an entrepreneur with my three older brothers out of that and when I got out of Syracuse I was actually Destined to uh work at a television station in Dayton, Ohio in sales. And my dad became ill. And he said, I can't believe I'm asking you this, but can you uh come back into the family business for a little while? So, long story short, is his illness went away. We spent 10 years doing running a, a family business. And in one Thanksgiving, uh, he said, I'd like to retire. I said, Thank God, I'd like get out of this business because it's seven days a week. And then I uh had the opportunity to sit back and say, okay, what do I wanna do with my life now? And uh, the same gentleman that was uh, in charge of the junior fair board when I was in high school was now the CEO of Eastern States, Wayne McCary. And I had a little visit with Wayne and uh, said to Wayne, "Um, I'd really like to come on board. And it was the time when the fair was expanding from 12 to 17 days, which was a huge political thing to get done in the town. And he says, "I'd love to hire you, but I, I can't. I can't do it till I get this done. It's going to be a year, eighteen months. Um, so I, I sold drugs legally. I was a pharmaceutical rep. Uh, for that <laughs> I was t- like, there's got to be another end of that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> for that time period, and uh, uh, the day I was, the, the day before I was going to get promoted to a district manager with a pharmaceutical company, uh, Wayne offered me a job, and it was a really smart decision that I made to do that, and uh, didn't regret a moment of those twenty-four years."
0: So after such a long career at the Big E, what influenced you to go to OABA?
1: Well, Bob John, ironically, Bob Johnson, who was the previous CEO, was also the CEO of the OABA for 24 years. And um, what they did in their process is they asked their directors to reach out to individuals that they thought would be good candidates. And I actually had several people approach me about uh, applying for the position and uh, I had always been involved with OAPA. I was also the carnival liaison, liaison in addition to being a director of sales. And uh, I knew the industry well and um, thought it was a great opportunity for me. The only, the only drawback that I had to it was uh, the office was located in Orlando, Florida. And I really didn't have any intention of moving my family to Orlando, Florida. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, all worked out well. Uh, they, they hired me, had no problem with the, moving the office up this to, to Springfield mask. No one ever goes to the office anyway, just so you know, except for us. All right. <laughs> and so, uh, it's been a, it's been a good marriage so far. I mean, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing and uh, so far they seem to be pretty happy with the job that I'm doing. So.
0: With your experience, uh, I know you've seen a lot of carnivals operate over the years. What in your opinion makes for a great show?
1: Well, bar none safety, the safety record of a show is, is important um, not only for that carnival, but for every other carnival that's out there. It's unfortunately, you know, at some point in time, you will have an incident in our industry. I mean, it's inevitable, um, but I equate the, the, the media's response to an amusement ride accident to that of an airliner crashing. It's, it's that much of a media event when something happens, um, our incidents are so low. I mean, on a percentage basis because of our good safety record. The, in fact, the CPC about 12 years ago stopped tracking our incidents because it was costing them so much to track nothing that they just said, we're, we're not gonna track these incidents any longer. Wow. So, and, and so by far safety, um, it's not the ma and pa carnival of yesterday. Or, you know We're running businesses here and everyone knows that and businesses run and succeed because of customer service, um, because of you know, well-trained employees, uh, well taken care of employees, um, and and increasingly, you know, let's say in the last 10 years, much more of an interactive role with the events that they that they service. So um, it's it's a big business. I mean, and it's a very unique business. You're, you're moving mountains of steel every time you move and taking them apart and putting them back together again, and getting your help there, and getting every permit in the world that you need to to do that. And so uh, it's it's a complex business, and and it's it's big business.
0: It really is. And I never realized how big it was until I went out and did like LA County and OC and I saw RCS's operation that at scale is just an incredible operation to observe. Um, but then I know here in New Mexico, I, I, you can never underestimate the value as a community partner of a good carnival operator. We, um, you know, years ago, probably I'm guessing 10 years ago. Now, Dan morning came in as the, the, director of the New Mexico state fair, you know, that position's always been a political politically driven one. Um, Governor at the time, Susana Martinez gets him in there, not as a political favor, but because she knew he had what it took to save that fair. And sure enough, he, he does save the fair, you know, that this New Mexico state fair is rocking and rolling now. And it is in no small part because of what Rick Reidhofer did with his organization. They came in there, the, the impact they've made on this on, on the state fair on the grounds I don't think the public necessarily sees it. You know, these are, these are things that are, are not necessarily visible unless you're in the industry and you know, but man, Rick Ridehopper did a great job here in New Mexico. Absolutely fabulous.
1: And, and you hit the nail on the head, Robert. It, it has to, it has to be a partnership now. They've always referred to it, but you know, the, the costs for a carnival and, and a fair and event to operate, they're, they're pretty much on a similar track. Um, but you have to evaluate where you are from a business standpoint and, and, and a perfect example and it's, it's been played out time and time again in the last five years is that you know okay the carnival needs to bring X amount of rides they need to operate from 10 in the morning to whatever 11 at night and you know and that's what the contract says and that's what we have to do well if the carnival is riding six people from 10 in the morning to 11 in the morning that doesn't make economic sense um, and so there's been a lot more dialogue going back and forth, um, about the, the overhead costs of carnivals. Same with the number of rides. It's not the number of rides. It's the c- total capacity of those rides. And if you have capacity to ride 25,000 people an hour and you're only riding 10, well, maybe we need to look at taking a couple of rides out of the mix to see, to see what that does. It's not going to change the gross. Um, right. It's just going to reduce some of the overhead. And and it, and it goes both ways. I mean, you know, on, on, the, on the fairgrounds, Side that they have the same issues. Um, and, and they and they recognize it. And it, it comes down to what it always comes down to is that is communication between partners. If you don't, if you don't state what some of your challenges are, how are you ever going to fix them? And that and that works on, on both sides. Um, and it, it also leads to, you know, one of the biggest issues in our industry is labor. Um yeah. we rely on temporary foreign labor and quite simply because. Americans don't wanna do the jobs of some of what the carnival folks do. Now, you know, there, uh, don't get me wrong, there are certainly carnivals that don't use foreign labor, but there are a lot that do. And, and in some cases, couldn't operate without that foreign labor. And, and you know, it's, it's, it, it's interesting, the industry demands strong standards for safety. Um, and you know, it, there's a, a qualified level of skill that it takes to be a good ride operator, to set a ride up, to take it down. Um, And without our foreign labor, we just don't have a U.S. workforce that that, that's there to facilitate that.
0: Yeah, we've chatted with, you know, with Jay Straits and Debbie Powers and a number of people that um, are involved in the industry. And they have more than assured me that when you hear these politicians talk about they're taking American jobs, that is not the case that they're. um, I think one of them said, you know, they they put out a full page ad in, in a newspaper and uh, it, it, you know, every event or whatever they do for the last four years. And they got one applicant.
1: Yeah. And he turned around when he found out he had to take a drug test.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, these, these are not the shows that I remember as a kid because the carnivals always had the reputation, the whole, the carny thing. And, you know, don't go off in a dark corner of the carnival. Cause you never know what's going to happen. That's when I was a kid, as an adult working these, this industry and seeing these people, these are some of the most professional people that I, I work with anywhere. They do, they really do a fantastic job they the You know, they, they do their best to hire great employees. Like you say, a lot of times that comes down to foreign labor. Uh, what do you see happening if anything from Congress in the next year regarding the H2B visa program?
1: Well, you know, we we've really limped along for the last five years filing appropriation bills to get the, the cap. Cause there's a, there's a fixed number of people that can go into this industry and, you know, it's not just our industry. I mean, we use a consistent number of around 7,000 foreign laborers every year, but the other pool of people that are in here are landscapers, foresters, um, this, the seafood industry in, in certain pockets of the country. So there's a whole whole gamut of folks and their numbers are all over the place. I mean, one year they're huge, one year they're, you know, they dip down. Um, but we need to get a permanent fix to this problem. And, and I think of all the industries we're, we're relatively poised in our consistency and on what we use and like 70 to 75% of the, the workers that we use return every year. and, and uh, you know, We got caught up in the whole immigration thing, if you would, but you know, our, our labor program is not a pathway to citizenship. It's a temporary labor force. It's been around for decades. We don't have people that get in on it and run away and go somewhere else. Um, so, you know, there's a new administration, there's a, there's a new way of thinking and, and who knows where that'll come out in the end. But uh, I mean, we've been advocating heavily now for, for many years in Washington. We, we have very expensive lobbyists that, that work for us. And um, I'm, I'm hoping we can get a pathway to some permanent relief because it's no way to run a business. I mean, how can you run a business where you, you sign a contract with somebody for three or five years You've been in business with them for decades, you know, your family business, and then you can't perform because you don't have labor. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And everyone you talk to in Washington agrees that it doesn't make sense. Um, but the politics of Washington being what it is, is what it is.
0: Yep. And, you know, I want to, I want to do my best to avoid politics on the show, but this, I, I, I got a question on, on this, um, I'm going to ask it. Last fall, then candidate Joe Biden chided President Trump, saying something to the effect of calling Trump, uh, I think, was a, a desperate carnival barker or something to that effect, right. um, and talking about um, tricking people out of their money. You know, basically being a con man. Um, that didn't sit so well with a lot of folks in our industry. Tell us about that.
1: No, no, it didn't. And you know, that's that's the that's the reputation that as you indicated, was of the industry at one point in time. Uh, the reality of it, it, it no longer is. Um, we did respond as an industry and we put out on, on all the wire services. Uh, our response was very polite, um, but just asked the, the then presidential candidate at the time to try to refrain from stereotyping uh, industries in general, ours and spe- specifically. Um, but it was, I guess, just one of those Joe Biden gaffes that everyone talks about.
0: We've had a few. I think uh, that's a requirement to be president anymore. Is you got to be able to stick your foot in your mouth. Um, listen, aside from the obvious adjustment to COVID safe uh, moving forward, what what's one area you see that our midway operators could improve on?
1: Um, in, in general, I, I think they're doing a pretty good job. I mean, I, I think you'll find that capital was restricted. Uh, that is buying new rides or new food or new games this year. Um, I, I think that the public in general just expects something new and spectacular and you know, and, and seeing something along those lines. I, I think the industry itself has come a long way in its reputation and, and that's evident in, in the gross numbers of sales going up, which means the public buys into it. Um, but we just we need to continue on with, you know, plugging safety. I mean, Um, We have national organizations that that are uh, Ames and NARSO that are responsible for a lot of the safety training that goes on. Um, I I just think that we just need to keep plugging along and and moving along the way we we have been. And um, I I don't see any serious gaps in, in our product.
0: I think we've got a good product. I've said for this entire season of all the industries out there, we're probably the most prepared to be able to go back to work and handle this pandemic. You know, we've, cause we've dealt with it. We've dealt with E. coli H1N1 we've run the gambit. Literally all we're doing is scaling our response. That's already in place.
1: That's a good point. A, a point, the public and, and quite honestly, our elected officials probably don't realize that, you know, in the barns, we've been dealing with this kind of stuff for decades. Um, and, and, and really without incident and without spread. So, uh, you know, if you have the carnivals operating safely outside, you have the, the fair and agricultural programs operating safely inside, quite honestly, under protocols that they've probably been using for years, uh, and the public that that is satisfied with those products and feel that they can go there safely, um, it's all pointing to a win-win-win and good year.
0: Yeah. And maybe that needs to be part of the messaging is, hey, we know you guys are spooked about COVID, but we've been doing this for decades. Yeah. You know, we're, we were more than prepared. We were the first prepared for this really. So listen, uh, getting to um, being on just about out of time here, um, but I wanted to check with you. You guys just had Florida week going on. How'd that give town event go for you guys?
1: Good. So for those that aren't familiar with Florida week, basically Florida week consists of the, the state fair in Tampa opening um, the NICA, the National Independent Concession Association, having their gatherings of educational sessions, annual meeting, food show, uh, the OABA gathering uh, for some committee meetings, board meeting and our annual event, and uh, the Give Town trade show that goes on, which is really uh, the only trade show very narrowly focused on the mobile industry. And so our board of directors back in October, November, more November, I think it was, uh, when poised with the question, "Do we want to move forward with going to to participate in Florida Week?", uh, the overwhelming amount of people said yes. We we need to we need to meet in person as long as it's safe to do so. Uh, the NICA people and and the and the folks at Gibtown said we're going to move forward. Uh, the Florida State Fair obviously postponed its dates, um, so that element was was out. And and really the only influence on that was that we didn't have a lot of people that would normally come to our event in town. So they weren't gonna make a special trip out. Um, but the, the bottom line to us was we had a great week. We had a safe week. I mean, uh, the majority of our board participated in, in, in their board meeting. Uh, instead of having 300 people at our annual meeting, we had about a hundred, um, but we did celebrate the, the honors to our two hall of fame inductees and our, and our pioneer award inductee and a uh, good time was had by all. Um, the, the vendors that were at Town. Uh, pretty much expressed across the board that it was better than they expected. Of course, they hadn't made a sale at a trade show in a year. So I, in my opinion, anything they sold was better than expected. But um, So overall, it did two things. It got people together. Uh, they had a safe, we had a safe event. It spoke to our industry that, again, we can still operate safely. Um, but more importantly, I think it, it it paved the pathway for some of our other organizations to to get back to, to live meetings and, and you know push the ball forward.
0: Well, I know a couple of the people we've spoken with that were down there expressed just being in the presence of their friends um, and their their colleagues in the industry meant a lot to them to their mental health to feeling like there's a light at the end of this tunnel.
1: Yeah, and we we had our annual Top Golf uh, fundraiser for H two B on Thursday night where we normally sell out two entire bays of the Top Golf facility. We sold out one this year. Um, but you had, like you just said, you had friends that have not seen each other for a year and, uh, trust me, a good time was had by all.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear it was a safe event. I, you know, I know most of the events that, um, we've spoken with down in Florida, you know, we had Danny Alfonso on the show for Manatee County and he was telling us that from the day, the fair opened until up, up to two weeks after when we recorded their spread rate went down every day. Right. So, I really think we can do it safely. I hope as some of these fairs start to go, as Florida goes, Texas goes, you know, North Carolina is going to jump in the mix here. I hope as these things happen, I hope the politicians and local health departments open their eyes and go, oh yeah, they could do it safely without anybody else getting sick.
1: And, and, you know, I can only speak for our membership, but our membership at this point holds exactly that, that feeling in their heart. And they will, unlike last year, which was a year of uncertainty and no one, Knew what to do and people would accept the fact, okay, you're putting us out of business government for a year. Um, I think the attitude's a lot different this year. We've demonstrated that we can operate safely. Um, the public has demonstrated that they're ready to get back to some kind of normalcy in their life. And, uh, you're going to see people pushing a lot harder this year to get opened and to, to bring back the, you know, the Americana way of life that the carnivals and fairs and festivals have represented for in many cases over a century in our country. And, uh, I don't think there's going to be too much that's going to stop, us, Robert.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And, I mean, let's just take, for example, the residents of California are getting ready to recall their governor over (laughs) over his decisions. A a, a blue state is about to recall a blue governor. So if it's getting to that, people are done with this nonsense. It doesn't – I don't think it matters what side of the aisle anybody falls on. People are done you know, if masks work, if physical distancing works, if we can, you know, use the hydrostatic sprayers and keep things clean and keep people safe, we need to get
1: open. Exactly.
0: Listen, I'm really glad you could be on the show today. Before we go, everyone who comes on the show goes through a little series of speed round questions. So I'm going to ask you just a handful of questions. You give me your best answer for each. Are you ready? Yes. Favorite ride at the fair.
1: Always the carousel.
0: The single carousel or like straights, double carousel. Anyone will do. Anyone will do. I love that double. When I've worked down in Kissimmee with Jay Straits, that double carousel is just magic to me. It's one of the coolest rides in the the industry. Um, Coffee or tea? Coffee. How do you take it?
1: Several times a day.
0: (laughs) An IV drip if possible, right?
1: Favorite movie? Oh, not Not much. Okay, this is a lightning round. Favorite movie? Water for Elephants. How's that? Perfect. First celebrity crush. I'm sorry? First celebrity crush. Oh, David Cassidy, because we share the same birthday. (laughs) Nice. You can have a
0: conversation with one historical figure. Who is it? And what do you talk about?
1: Given where we are in our place and time, I'm going to say Rush Limbaugh.
0: And what do you talk about?
1: The Everything going on right now, the future of America. I dig it. If you
0: could have a guest role on any television show, past or present, which show would it be? Hmm.
1: I don't know. I don't watch enough television to even do that. Yeah, I was on
0: with somebody the other day and they said Law and Order is what they'd want to be on. I said, hey, that'd be a great one. If I was on Law and Order, though, that my guest spot would be, I'd be the dead body they find in the first two minutes and then I'd be out of the show. <laughs> I'd, that'd be it.
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: Greg, listen, if folks want to get in touch with you or you're, uh, and learn more about OABA, where can they do that?
1: Well, as in general sense, they can certainly go to our OABA website, which is oaba.org. Uh, my my email address is Greg C at oaba.org, or you can always call into the office. The number is on the web, and any one of our staff folks will be happy to help out.
0: Fantastic, Greg Chico, president of OABA. It's been a pleasure getting to visit with you. Good luck in 2021. I hope we actually get to meet in person, maybe one of the conventions sometime this year. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Robert, thank you for having me on the show and for for doing this podcast. I'm sure it's meaning a lot to a lot of different people in the industry, and hopefully. Uh, some insight to the general public. As well, that might catch your podcast. Well, I sure hope so. Thanks again for your time.
0: You've been listening to the fair game podcast air game is a production of Robert Smith presents for more information. Please visit
1: robertsmithpresents.com.